Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hey folks, welcome to this week's show, or welcome back if you have been listening to prior shows. Um, this week, my guest is the one and only Randy Jackson, who most of you will primarily know from his 12 seasons on American Idol. Um, he and I have a very long history, and he is one badass bass player and musician. Um, Randy is a member of Journey and has done studio sessions and touring work with such artists such as Mariah Carey, Bruce Springsteen, Tracy Chapman, uh, John Bon Jovi, Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Herbie Hancock, George Benson, <laughs> Narda Michael Walden, and John Luke Ponty, and the list can go on and on and on. Randy has been both a major label uh, record executive and a prolific entrepreneur with many TV productions on his plate, um, past productions like America's Best Dance Crew, and other ventures, including Randy Jackson's Hit List. Aside from his many accomplishments, I have to say uh, Randy is one of the most generous and authentic humans uh, you'll ever meet. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with my friend, Randy Jackson. On to my conversation with Randy. Hi, Randy Jackson. What's going on, Nicholas Terzo? What's going on, brother? My longtime friend, thank you for doing this. I am so grateful. Dude, listen, I miss you, man. How's life? Yeah, I miss you too. Uh, life in the music city, man. This is the hip happening city, and here I be. Oh, you're there in Nashville. I love it. Yes. Where are you uh, quarantining? Are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A. still, man. Hollywood Hills here holding it down, grinding, <laughs> Nick, grinding. <laughs> is everybody safe and healthy, your whole entire tribe yeah my family's all good man thank god i mean you know it's a very weird time that we're living in a very crazy time with covid and then the social injustice that's going on in the world but you know it's time for the world to reset and look at itself and carry on with what's good and throw the bad out indeed we are definitely in a a trifecta of um Kind of bad mojo right now. So, yeah. and uh, I have, if anything, I think much like you, you've probably taken great solace in the youth um, of today because, yes. man, they're leading the charge and I'm ready to hand it over to them. It's theirs. Yeah. I <laughs> love it, it though. I love, well, you know, the future's theirs and they should paint it the way they want to paint it. Right. Absolutely. So, have you been involved in any of this or have you kind of stayed away because of the COVID thing or uh, any of the marches or? I did some stuff with a couple of them, but for the most part, kind of just stayed safe. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could. I would love to be on the streets, but I'm just too old these days. Can't uh, yeah, expose you and myself. I both, Nick. <laughs> I can't we're, expose we're, myself. We're older young men. Oh, it's true. It's true. So what have you been up to? Like, what are you doing currently? What's, uh, what's got you excited? Uh, we're still developing a lot of TV shows. Out pitching and selling. Uh, we got some things that'll come on next year because COVID hit and just threw a wrench into all productions, as you've probably heard. Yep. Uh, we got a lot of products in the marketplace. I got uh, a whole health 
line with Unify Health Labs with all sort of vitamins and shakes and things that are good for your body, trying to get people healthy. Yeah, so I want to talk one. to you a bit about that. You know, I got a, an email about that, and I'm just curious yeah, because I'm not at my I'm not in my fighting shape right now. I got probably 50 pounds on me that I shouldn't. Well, Nick, um, you got to get some of these products. You know, like I did a lot of work on myself. You know, the health, mind, body, and you know, health is definitely the new wealth. If you got that, you got a fighting chance. Without that, right. nothing else really matters. So I kind of really doubled down on that. You know. Um, got with a bunch of healthcare professionals, a bunch of doctors, and we came up with an amazing array of vitamins and minerals and things that we think can help people. You know, and gut health, I didn't realize until I went through my whole transformation, gut health is everything, bro. Every disease, mm. everything you do starts in the gut. So we got we got to get you on the program, man. Come on. Yeah, Unify I Health Labs for Nicholas Terzo, people. <laughs> I am in. I am in. I'd seen it and I'd read it and I'd kind of seen the video and it's like, wait a minute, this, this makes a little bit of sense here. What is this? Yeah. And, gut uh, health, man. Yeah. Cause I've just been fighting, you know, look, when you and I used to run the streets a little more, <laughs> Yeah, I was with a trainer, I was in shape, you know, I was a younger man by 25 years. Yeah. And, and now at my age, man, it is an Italian kid. This stuff just does not come off. Yeah. The pasta get, takes a little while to get off. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. And I know you've gone through it well and uh, come out of it well. So I saw a picture of you that your assistant sent and you look good. Well, I've been trying, Nick. I've been working on it, man. It's still a work in progress. You know, uh, many years ago, I developed type 2 diabetes. So I had to do something to get my life and health together, you know. So there's no cure, but you can definitely manage it. So I had to, I had to wake up, as we say, I had to reset my whole thing. You know, and is, is, and that checks everything, right? When you do that, I mean, you can, you definitely can control type two. Definitely can control, but you have to be very mindful. You have to be consistent and you just got to change your life. I went through, I had a divorce food because, you know, I grew up in a lovable South of Louisiana where there's not enough butter, lard, syrup, <laughs> sugar on everything. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yeah. And I well, put I, more honey on my steaks. <laughs> I saw a quote you had, which was fantastic, where you said, if there's a party like with donuts, like you, you associate food with like a party. And I thought that was kind of brilliant in a way. That was the happiness. And yeah, because it was a I bacchanal, mean, you know. Well, eating's very emotional, isn't it? Oh, it is. Happy, sad, contemplative, whatever mood you're in. There's always a food that's going to satiate somewhat, you think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, you definitely connect the dots from your emotions to your eating patterns. Um, so we have that. We have a eyewear line, Randy Jackson Eyewear by Xylaware. We manage a lot of writer producers and a handful of artists. And uh, on the music side, they got songs and stuff and movies and TV shows and various artists. And you know, we do some of that and, uh, you know, we got a full plate here. We got more products launching soon and continue to grind and build. You're not busy. Yeah, you know, we love, we love busy, Nick. We, it's who we are. <laughs> it is. It is. This is lifestyle. So, yeah. So do you still have the studio too or not? You had, I had don't have one currently, Yeah. but I got out of mine about 
a year ago because all my writers and producers have spots. Although right. I'm probably going to do a new one very soon. Right. Well, I'm just glad during the COVID because it doesn't, it must be very bad for business um, during this crisis. Well, you know, studio. well, the music business and the recording business is way down, but the streaming business is way up at all the labels, you know, so people are sitting around and you probably need music to help you get through this. Oh boy, do you. So, you know what I mean? You do. So let's talk a little bit, you know, about your journey and, you know, how a, a nice Southern boy from Louisiana, you know, gets himself out to the West Coast, becomes, you know, a mother effer bass player, session player. Um, you attended, co you grew up down in Baton Rouge and you attended college there? Yeah, I grew up, went to Southern University down there, you know, graduated, um, you know, and then kind of moved between there and New York. And there in touring because my first big break was with this jazz fusion drummer, Billy Cobham. And he was in a jazz fusion group called the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I know. And, um, you know, it was like jazz through Marshalls. It was like rock jazz. <laughs> yep, yep. It was the predecessor to Rush and Early Journey and all those bands in Santana. You know, it was all of that. So... Um, so for like how long a period of time did you play with Mahavishnu? Well, I played with Billy Cobham, the drummer from there for, and I recorded two albums, three albums, I would say three, four years, maybe five years toward the world, went everywhere, um, you know, had a blast and kind of grew up on the road. And I mean, are you a, are you a self-taught player? I mean, is this something you did as a kid? I no, mean, I took lessons. No? Well, I took lessons. I went to college, I majored in music. You know, I was the kid that I heard when I was young, you gotta be a sponge with all the older greats and the mentors. I would just try and soak up as much knowledge, wisdom, playing, understanding of music as I could. And, you know, luckily for me, I sort of grew up on, you know, Beatles, Motown, Zeppelin, Hendrix. So uh, I had all those early beginnings and, you know, I love Coltrane and Miles and, you know, my brother's a drummer, so I got a chance to listen to amazing music. And I didn't realize till I was a lot older how important the understanding of song and structure was to me because if you look at the Beatles and Motown, those are probably the two greatest songwriting traditions ever in the history of music. Right. So, uh, I mean... Hundreds of copyrights. Yep. Yeah, interesting. And did you, when you were, did Southern University, did they have like a marching band? Did they have the traditional drumline stuff where all the- Well, they had all of that. They had all of that, but they had this jazz guy, Alvin Batiste, who became my mentor and teacher. And he started a jazz studies program. So that's what I really got. And that's the reason I really went there. It's wow. because of Alvin Batiste. And when I was 16, my brother used to play with Alvin and his band. My brother's a great, amazing drummer, Herman. And I got a chance to meet Cannonball Adley at 16. So listen to him talk, you know, like fly on the wall, little kid. And I just, you know, Alvin was really the gateway for most of us in Louisiana. Is he still alive? Is he still with us? Now, God rest his soul, he passed on some years ago, but 
What a great teacher. What a great man. We all owe him a lot. Was he, I mean, was he a monster player? Did he play a bunch of, I mean, what was his background? He was a monster player, grew up as a classical clarinet guy, transformed that into uh, jazz and just an amazing player and understood the music at a degree that most people didn't. So did he he record? I mean, did he have recordings? He recorded records. We recorded with him. He recorded a lot with others. He was also in Billy Cobham's band with me. Okay. So yeah, he was amazing. So you, you tour the world. I mean, your primary residence then is New York city. Well, there in Louisiana at the time. So then I, then I got this teaching gig in Houston. I went there for a minute, got out of New York, came off the road and decided I wanted to go West because I'd met a girl from Seattle. So I was going to move to LA. I'd met a bunch of people in LA and I was at a show at the Santa Monica Civic and I met the drummer, Narda Michael Walden, who took over for Billy and Mahavishnu. We were backstage. We started talking. And he says, hey, you should come to San Francisco. I'm going to start this production company. And we're going to try and do these R&B pop records. Like, wow. So guy like me with a bunch of other guys like me trying to cross over. So I went up there, checked it out, and stayed. My girl moved down from Seattle and started grinding up there with Narda. So that was, yeah, I was trying to understand the, the San Francisco, you know, how you made that leap there. And I didn't know you had met Michael prior to that. Well, then I had friends up there, another guy named Don Miley, another guy named Patrick Cowley. And uh, they were working over at Fantasy Records. And Fantasy had signed this guy named Sylvester. So I didn't even know who Sylvester was, but I knew the song, The Mighty Real Song. So then I went in and recorded a bunch of stuff with them. Uh, I met all the Santana boys. I did a bunch of stuff with Carlos. Uh, I met Neil. I met Steve Smith. Met all the Journey boys. So that's how the whole journey of it all started. And, you know, it was just a healthy Marin County, San Francisco time. You know, we're all close, all hanging out together, jamming, playing. It was like the original jam scene. Right. You know what I mean? No, that was an incredible time. And, you know, I think San Francisco has been so rebranded, right, as a technology city that no one remembers. I mean, well, people do remember, but what an artist city that was during that. It was cool because, Nick, it wasn't L.A. It wasn't Seattle, you know well. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It was just such a different, and it wasn't so much the city. It was always people came from Oakland or Berkeley or, you know what I'm saying? It, but it was just culturally diverse and rich and just kind of like, I used to always say it's like a European city on the West Coast. Like, I feel like New Orleans is a European city in the South. Yes. Like, you know. These two cities don't care what goes on anywhere else in the world, but in that city, you know? Yeah, they definitely march to their own uh, drum. Yeah, you know, proud of, you know, like, I mean, just, you know, it was just an interesting time because, I mean, when you think about 
the hippie movement, hate Nashbury, and the dead, and all those things that came from it. It, it was just a different kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so did you become a little bit of a studio rat? I mean, were you hanging out at Fantasy? I was hanging and- out. I was doing records at Fantasy at the record plant. I was playing with a lot of people, Frankie Beverly and Mays on the R&B side. Uh, you know, we're all were friends. I was hanging out with the Tubes. Uh, we became really great friends. Fee Wable. Fee Wable, man. All those boys who were like circus performers, but they were street artists, but they were musicians. But I mean, what a cool collective of, of guys. They had dancers. Uh, the great Kenny Ortega has now gone on to give you high school musical mm-hmm. and everything else that you know. He was the lead tubes dancer. Oh, wow. So, so when you look at how these guys have formed, it just it was such a rich in art and diversity, just in human kindness and passion. I dude, I just I feel so blessed and fortunate to have been there at the time. Yeah, it was incredible. It's a definitely a moment in time. And there, I mean, you decided at some point you joined Journey and did a couple of well, years of duty in the eighties. Well, I was doing all these records with Narda. I mean, we worked on Clarence Clemens. We worked on Aretha. We worked on Whitney. We worked on Kenny G. I mean, we did Herbie Hancock. We did. You, we must have done seventy-five records. Madonna. We worked on everything, right? Mm. And I met the Journey guys, and I started a little side project with Steve Smith and Tom Costa from Santana and myself. And during that time, I'd worked with this jazz violinist, Jean-Luc Ponty, who also had played in Mahavishnu. So Billy Cobham and Jean-Luc Ponty was sort of my way into the jazz side, and they both were originally in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So from there, led me to Narda. From Narda, led me out to a lot of other things. And I just kind of found my way. And... Became really good friends with Neil. Neil would come and jam with me and Steve and Tom. And we all became close friends. I mean, you know, I used to do these pickup shows with the dead. We had this like charity band we put together with Carlos Santana, Garcia Weir, Tony Williams playing drums, Joe Henderson playing sax, Armando. It was the wildest band, but it was so amazingly avant-garde and artistic that you know it was just it was just a bunch of artists getting together sharing so i do miss, i miss that actually i miss that because i wish more people would lend themselves to that as opposed to all being so separately siloed right you know what i mean well that's what i've always loved about you you know and i think people know your persona from the tv stuff and all that right but when I got to know you, what I thought was great about you, there was just no real boundary to like any of your music. Musically, you had no boundaries and you were all over. And I love that you had that curiosity and that ability to explore all these different mediums. And I think you that know, it's Nick, a thing where everybody's in a silo. You're right. I love music, you know, as do you. I mean, uh, I don't know if people know your history, but the great Nick Terzo, which has made a lot of dreams come through for a lot of bands. 
I'm thinking of a great band called Alice and Chains. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think, you know, you love music like I love music. I think that was also the difference in the A&R guys, you and I from back in the day. Uh, we actually really loved music. That's and, why you wanted to do it. Well, and, and the thing I thought, and you know, this is like a conversation now in the modern label, right? About what do you call the urban department, right? What do you call? And it was weird though, because my experience and you, this is just my point of view and you may have a different one. You know, I kind of felt like, why is everybody being put in these categories? What if I yeah. saw, what if I saw the next Prince? So I couldn't sign that. I don't understand these, all these yeah. little fences that are being put up inside the label. Well, you're absolutely correct, Nick. I'm, I remember, and I know you remember at a time when we were at Columbia, we would be in England. And if we wanted to sign something, the British label would go, no, that's our territory. Well, I just think it's dope. I don't care whose territory it is. I want to sign it. So I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, I hope that labels are taking more opportunities like that to sign stuff that's great, as opposed to just sign stuff that's researching well. And that has a lot of huge following. Because if something's already built with a huge following, what are you bringing to it? It's already started, so you didn't really build it. You know, you're just chiming on. It's the ambulance chaser. Yeah, it seems and, you're, you're abdicating um, a large portion of what you should be as a record company. Yeah. I mean, you know, we would always say, and I still say this now, don't tell me who you've signed. What have you broken? What have you done? What have you gone to work and rolled up your sleeves and really took the task and saw this artist and made the dream come true for your label, yourself, and that artist? That's so, the real measure. Yeah, I agree. And it's lacking in large quantity today. Um, so you, the San Francisco chapter, you know, when did that kind of close for you? How did you get to Los Angeles then? Even though well, you probably were doing sessions down there anyway all the time. I was doing sessions in LA. I would, you know, come down and work with all sorts of people. Um, Elton, Billy Joel, Lionel Richie, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I just, you know, I just became that guy. And it's a funny thing. When I was younger, I won a scholarship in, in high school to go and study with Chuck Rainey who had played on Aretha Franklin records, Motown records, all the Steely Dan records. I mean, this guy was in the Blackbirds. This guy was an amazing guy. And, you know, I didn't think I would ever become that, but I was slowly sort of becoming that. And the Bay Area was very interesting. I befriended a guy that had started, he was a producer and a writer. And he started with another dear friend of mine that I met up there. Howie Klein had a label called 415. There was a guy that started at that label with Howie named David Kahn. We all started together and loved music. There were all these very cool translator, Romeo Void, these cool San Francisco indie bands that were signed to 415 that was an indie label that started 
as a college radio station and how he was the DJ there. And he started this little indie label. And um, he made a deal with Columbia Records. So we started doing stuff together. And then so one day, uh, David says to me, man, you ever think you want to get an A&R? You know, you got a pretty good business. I say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And he says, well, listen, I know you know Tommy Matola, but we just brought over this guy, Donnie Einer, from Arista as the president. And um, Donnie, I knew a little bit because I'd done a lot of records for Arista with Narda and also by myself because they had Whitney Houston, they had Aretha, they had Kenny G, they had Jeff Lorber. They had all this stuff over there. So, um, you know, it was just relationship after relationship. And while I was with Narda, Tommy sends this girl that they just signed at Columbia out to San Francisco for us to work with. We heard some demos and we're like, wow, this girl's incredible. Her name was Mariah Carey. So it just kind of naturally formed and mushroomed that way for me to get into A&R and do that because I hated most A&R people. I still don't like many of them today uh, because I fault them for the good music and the bad music. <laughs> right. And so far, the bad still is outweighing the good. But, you know, it's a tough fight. It's a tough battle. Yeah, I, um, I think everybody goes in with the best intentions, but it's hard. Listen, I, I, I used to remember a time that everybody, Nick, and I'm sure you know this because you were one, wanted to be an A&R. But once you got in and you realize how difficult and hard it is, you're like, man, what was I thinking? Yeah, you can't even, uh, you know, and the thing is the artist never really understands um, the amount of time and energy and politics you have to fight through within that, your own building, right? You Before to, you go out to the world. It's, you have to insane. fight for them internally, something you believe in. You're fighting every day with the marketing and promotion people, the label managers, the chairman, the president. You're really trying to push their wares uphill. It's hard. It's, it's, it's definitely a struggle, let alone getting, you know, helping guide the creative and getting that right. Um, so you did A&R for Columbia from say for like a decade or so. Did you yeah, enjoy uh, it? Did you like being kind of like on that side of the I like part of it. I like part of it. You know, it was a struggle. Look, I mean, working at Columbia was a great thing. I mean, you know, you and I, we know this well. Um, you know, there were it's like anything else. There were some good times, some not so good times, but you know, it taught me a lot. And if you could work there, we used to say you could work anywhere because it's probably the toughest place and the hardest place to really have success. And I was there for 10 years and then went to MCA for about five before I started the idol thing. So, and yeah. In those jobs, was, you had the flexibility in those jobs though, right? To still play, to still re to be a producer still, not just an A&R executive? Yeah, my deal always was slash producer. So I had the chance to produce and play still. And, you know, whether it was VP or whatever, it was also producer uh, slash producer. So thank God I had that. And 
Yeah, the plane was interesting and stuff because I'll never forget some of the A&R people and some of the label managers and the heads of the labels would see me on TV with an act and go, what is Randy Jackson doing on the <laughs> uh, Leno show or Letterman with Mariah? Does he work at MCA? Is he allowed to do that? You know, is that in his contract? And somebody would go, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, of that time period, especially the Columbia period, you know, I'll always be grateful to you and to, you know, David Kahn, who you mentioned earlier, um, you know, as a young kind of snot-nosed kid, you know, I, the guidance you guys provided, you know, on the studio side of things, right, to help groom me to become a really good A&R executive on the recording side, um, I'll always be grateful to you guys for that. And um, also be grateful to you for introducing me to Bruce Springsteen at one of our Grammy parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, well, Nick, listen, you're a special guy. And I always think it takes special people to do A&R. And I think you, what I always loved is you wanted to know the truth. You didn't want to know the bullshit and all the whatever, whatever. You're like, okay, yeah, but but how's this really go? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And it's like, because I think a lot of people have to fluff and they had the lingo, but you really wanted to know. So, you know, David and I, I mean, I love that. I'm sure David loved that because that was the whole thing. So, you know, and you had great respect from all of us in there. And, you know, listen, you're a talented guy in your own right, and you've got great ears and great instinct. And that's what I always say. If you can have instinct and you can follow it, and you can be honest and a hard worker, you can make some shit go. Right. And, and a bit of an anarchist, right? We had our, we had our anarchist punk ways too. Yeah. Listen, that's the whole thing. You know, listen, I mean, you know, David loved all those quirky bands when he signed Fishbone and got in yep. fist fights with the drummer and like, <laughs> you know, like, like just, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, he loved, he loved this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know. Clash of good art, huh? The clash of hey, good art. Man. <laughs> hey, those were good times, man. Those are good times. Yeah. So somehow after your, um, you left MCA or the idol thing came up and that made you leave MCA? Yeah, I was, during my time at MCA, I was beginning to not love being in a and r um uh it was an interesting time because i was seeing at that time we could have huge acts that we had like mary g blige or blink 182 on all the biggest tv shows for promotion and not really move the needle so i could see to me something else needed to happen and those bands were doing well, those acts, but the TV thing wasn't moving the needle. And I was a little not happy. I think I'd probably burn out on the whole A&R process at that point. And I was thinking to myself, okay, either I'll stop doing this. I'll just take a break for a while. Uh, I was doing sessions. I was getting a little waylaid with that too i just probably needed i needed something else or just to take some time off you know what i mean just to recharge right. to reset my own thing and really find 
my heart and soul in it again. And um, listen, I mean, and around the corner, an agent called me one day that I knew and said, hey, we're trying to bring this show over. You might have heard of it in England. And uh, sent me some tapes at that time, and I looked at it. I was dying laughing. It was cracking me up. You know, Kyle was cracking me up. And, you know, it was just a different look at uh, how to break acts. But what I loved about it is that Kyle was like me. He was an A&R guy at RCA in England. So, you know, when you look at everything as an A&R person, Nick, as you did, as you still are, and you will forever be because you're just that human like all of us, you look at everything with an extra critical eye. So I would say to people, as soon as I saw someone's face, 40 boxes would go down by the side of their head. Eyes too close together, knock knee, needs a hair makeover, teeth are jacked up, shy. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just riddle it off. Bad body language, you know, like, oh my God, you know, not sure there's a star. And Kenny Ortega taught me one thing that Bob Fosse taught him. He says, you got to walk in the room with it. Bob Fosse would look at people walk and go, no, <laughs> you ain't got it. I can tell the way you walk. You don't even believe in yourself. Get out of here. Mm. You know what I mean? And as crass and as hard as that is, it tells you a lot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Kyle was an A&R guy. So I was like, you know what? This is crazy. It's an insane thing. Music on TV is always corny at best. but this thing is either going to win or fail miserably. And I just, I just was in my gut. I had a bunch of meetings with the guys and I was just like, you know what? Why not take a chance? And your gut was right. It becomes this cultural juggernaut. <laughs> I didn't know if my gut was going to be right or not, Nick, but I knew I needed something. It was just, so outside the realm of anything I would ever think, but like yourself, people, as long as you keep an open mind and you're willing to learn, my God, and you're willing to grow, my God, you could achieve a lot. So I, I remember sitting with Kyle the first time when he came over from England, was sitting atop the Four Seasons and we were talking and I realized he was just really a real A&R guy like me and you. And he took a chance on his TV show in England and it blew up and he won. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, at least I'm doing it with like-minded people. So I look at these shows today and I look at, you can put every star on the show, but a star is not going to look at the talent like me and you look at it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I'm not competing with the star. I want the star to be as big as it can be. I'm not worried. Maybe the star could take me out. I don't care about that. And I'm going to be extra critical. And I'm going to try and make this star into the biggest thing in a whole galaxy. So, you know, just, it was, look, it, it, it really worked. We got massively lucky and so blessed. Grace of God, thank God, it all worked. And it became a huge hit. So, you know, this kind of becomes your another chapter, right? Of exploring and it yeah. becomes this cultural juggernaut. What are the, 
Like, what were the highs of that and kind of what are the lows of that? Like, what was the grind of doing that show? I mean, it has to be some kind of a grind. I mean, I know it looks fun, but you it's got to be grindy, too. Well, you know, for me, it wasn't much of a grind because, you know, I was used to touring and being on the road and, right. you know, we were traveling in style and it was just, you know, it, it really was, I think the hardest part was really just having a thick skin because, you know, but. I was those kids growing up. I was that artist trying to make it out of Louisiana and trying to grow my star as big as I could. So you develop a thick skin as an artist because people hate you 25 million times before they ever going to love you. And, you know, I went through that. So when you're on TV and you're saying stuff in front of people and at the height of the show, we got about 60 million eyeballs a week which is ridiculous because we're on twice a week. So people would either hate what I say, love me, call me this, call me that, names, whatever, whatever, whatever. It was almost like running for office, <laughs> you know? Uh, kind of before social media turned mean, right? At least at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you got to take the bumps and bruises with it. And Kyle and I would always say, if we're going to dish out the honesty, and the comments, we got to be willing to take it back. So I think the hardest part was really having a thick skin and not really getting affected or falling into, oh my God, I hate Randy Jackson. He sucks or whatever, you know? <laughs> you know, really just being that thing against the wind saying, I don't care what you think, I'm getting mine. Like, and I would always say, what would Bowie say in this moment? He would say to everybody, F them. I'm going ahead. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Bowie I'm would. Gonna, I don't think he was I'm, asking anybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do me. Yes. Yes. All uh, the greats said that. Yep. So I, I always think like that, you know, be it Hendrix, be it anybody today, be it any, anyone. I mean, be it of late Billy Eilish, be, be it whomever. And how, like, when you did that, I mean, like, what chunk of time would that take over, like, a year? Like, how many months of your life? Um, you know, it took up a fair bit of time because the process in itself, the show would run for three or four months. At the end of the show, about a month later, they went out and started the auditions across the country. So before we came out and saw them, so you had about two months there, then we'd dive in again and start going out to the various cities. Um, but, how many you know, people would you see, like, in a given, like, if you went to Dallas, like, how many people literally were in front of you in, like, a day? We or would see a cross-section of the best of the best of that city, or cross-section of whatever. If there were people on the balance of the spectrum, we'd go, like, we want to see them because we may see something you didn't see. Right. For instance, I remember George Sparks, who became a winner, had auditioned three times before she ever made it to us. So when she made it to us, we were like, how could you guys have seen this girl three times? And she's this good, and she may win the whole damn thing. So, you know, we would, you know. <laughs> they could miss things on the edges. Dude, I'm saying, you know, one of the things that I hate the most to this day, there was a girl that I loved that I still love today named Tori Kelly. It was just unbelievable. And, you know, everybody didn't see that, didn't understand it. I was just like, you guys are all crazy. 
this girl's incredible. You know what I mean? So, but she's gone on to make it and do her thing. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you know what I mean? It's like, look, the show's not for everyone. It's not the story for everyone. Um, but it was definitely a rocket ship for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and look, we all can pass our judgments. Um, you know, the show actually found some very talented people, period. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, Carrie, Adam, Kelly, of course. I mean, there's Ruben, there's Clay. There's like a, you know, Jordan is like Fantasia. There's a ton of people that all, you know, Daughtry, all, you know, there's just a ton of people that all came through that I think needed the launching pad that this was. And so did that, those type of stories and careers that launched like that, I mean, that spark, that A&R thing with you again, you know, being the proudness, you know, proud of watching something come from nothing. And Well, yeah. And what really sparked it is Kyle got the records. He did the records along with Clive. Right. And, you know, we got a chance to chime in on what we thought the record was, or he got a chance to chime in on the A&R process. So, and we would always say one thing because we're A&R guys, right? The slogan for the show is American Idol, the best undiscovered talent that there is. We would always say our credibility depends on if this person wins and they win after it and sell records and become a success. We cared because we're A&R guys and our names went on that. So we definitely followed that hard different from every other show people would say to me well why does somebody win this show and i don't hear from them again we stayed in the process and we were looking at people that we thought that could be stars and do well you know you're going to get the songs from everybody but can you carry it can you carry the weight can you actually do it and be a personality you know what i mean right no it's it's broad shoulder time. So You know, Jagger has a thing. Taylor Swift, Rihanna, Beyonce, Billy, they have a thing, you know, that is special to them. So it's, it's part of that 40 boxes, Nick, that you and I would do all the time. Yeah, but is it, you know what I'm saying? Right. It makes sense. And did you, I mean, was it as joyful for you to do it after, like, you know, when you guys were the original group, right, of judges and you know, the original was, group was a blast. Had to be fun. Was, dude, it was fun. We made it fun. Uh, we would do stuff live on the air that nobody could stop us and we could get away with. Pull pranks on each other live on the air, jokes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it was, you know, we, we had a blast. I mean, it was, you know, we luck and fell into something. It was just like, it was a godsend. So, you know. Yeah, that that was that was a great joy. Yeah, amazing. And then you kind of went through the different kind of changes, right, on the panel of judges and all that. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like breaking up the band. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 You got to hit band. You know, you're breaking it up piece by piece. Kyle, Paula was gone. Kyle was there. Kyle's gone. You know, so it went through a lot of iterations, and I was like, okay. I think I gotta, you know, I think this, I think it's time, you know, um, to go to a different ship. So 
I kind of got out of that and I started my TV production arm. We had a show on MTV called America's Best Dance Crew that we started. That did great. Yeah, ran for eight seasons on MTV, did incredibly well. And, you know, the Jabberwockies, our first winners. I have the show on NBC now, World of Dance with J-Lo. Um, yeah, we branded a lot there and did a lot. And, um, you know, I started that production company and went out selling formats and shows and developing, you know, something I still do a lot today. So, yeah, it was a good time. Well, I've got a couple more things I want to ask you before I, we, you kick me off and say something. Uh, no, no, no. So one is I just want to, like, all the sessions you played, you played so many sessions. Um, is there a great story that's just a great mind-blowing story from one of those sessions you could share? Uh, the one I'm thinking about now is recording in L.A. with Bruce Springsteen. It was the Lucky Town album and the Human Touch album. And we were... Do that like at A&M or somewhere? Or which studio? No, it was another studio on Romaine. It was the... It was the new Motown in L.A. I forget the name of the studio now, but um, we were there and Bruce and I were standing there talking. And Jeff Picaro, one of the greatest drummers ever from Toto fame, was playing drums, God rest his soul. Uh, and we were standing there and, you know, Jeff and I would get gear and stuff delivered. And, you know free this and free that guitar, whatever, whatever, drum kit, hi-hats or whatever symbols. And Bruce was like, man, you guys surely get a lot of free gear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, Bruce, I mean, you ever get any free stuff? He's like, no, man, I don't like it. I'm like, you don't like free stuff? What? We have some people send you some stuff. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. I go, well, well, why not? He'd go like, well, when I was broken, I had nothing. Nobody would give me a nickel. Now that I could buy it for myself, they want to give it to me for free? No, you don't really love me. You don't really love me. Uh, <laughs> I, re I remember that. And I'm like, this is my dude for life, dude. I love this guy. That man's integrity is just built I, in DNA, man. <laughs> dude, dude. Like, he's absolutely correct. Yeah, he's so now I could buy the company you want to give me the stuff for free? <laughs> what sense does this make? <laughs> Where were you when I needed it? That's fantastic. So You know what I'm saying? Like, wait a minute. This is all backwards. Uh, so brilliant. <laughs> you know what I mean? So before you leave, I just want to ask you, what are you listening to right now? Like, what's got you excited? Is there an artist out there, or a couple that you're really excited about? Look, I mean, I love a lot of hip hop stuff. I love Travis Scott. I love Kendrick Lamar. I love how those kids are pushing the envelope. I love what Post Malone has done with his career, how he's transformed himself from a singer songwriter into this guy. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, I love what Billie Eilish has done. I love the new Taylor Swift album a lot. I haven't I'm heard happy. that. People yeah, I'm happy that. she made an artist record, and it's just honest and raw. And um, I just love people that are out there pushing the envelope. Uh, there's a lot of songs that I love. Uh, you know, a um, lot of great pop songs out there. I love um, this song. Um, if the world was ending, 
um, which is J.P. Sachs and his mm. girlfriend. Um, it's just an amazing, amazing lyric. I still listen to a lot of old stuff. I love anything that Max Martin does. I think he's a living genius. He I is. think his productions are some of the best and smartest. I think the songwriting is bar none. Uh, I think, um, you know, I just, I think this kid Oz from Switzerland, this producer kid, is doing amazing, amazing work. I love the company that Drake has built out of Toronto with him and all of his guys and the writing, this girl Stara, who's a brilliant writer who writes with everybody. And yeah, I've heard, I've heard of her for sure. Yeah, she signed a pulse. So is Oz. But I just, uh, you know, um, there's a guy I manage, nephew, Theron Feimster, who's brilliant, Sebastian Cole. I, you know, I just, I still look for greatness, Nick, no matter what it is. Um, yep. Awesome. That's what it's about, my friend. Yeah. Whatever it is, so long as it's great. Yep. So we're going to wrap on that note. Thank you so much for your time. Please stay healthy. Please stay vectored. And uh, you are one of the greatest humans I know. You are so sweet. And uh, put more of that energy into the world. We need it. Well, Nick, love you back, brother. Love you right back. Take care of yourself. We're going to get you on a unified health plan. All right. I'll speak Come to on, you Nick. I'll speak to you soon. All right, peace, brother. Thank you. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Bye.